David Crockett, His Life and Adventures, by John S. C. Abbott. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. David Crockett, Chapter 2. Youthful Adventures. The wagoner, whom David had accompanied to Gerardstown, was disappointed in his endeavors to find a load to take back to Tennessee. He therefore took a load to Alexandria, on the Potomac. David decided to remain at Gerardstown till Myers should return. He therefore engaged to work for a man by the name of John Gray, for twenty-five cents a day. It was light farm work in which he was employed, and he was so faithful in the performance of his duties that he pleased the farmer, who was an old man, very much. Myers continued for the winter in teeming backward and forward between Gerardstown and Baltimore, while David found a comfortable home of easy industry with the farmer. He was very careful in the expenditure of his money, and in the spring found that he had saved enough from his small wages to purchase him a suit of coarse but substantial clothes. He then, wishing to see a little more of the world, decided to make a trip with the wagoner to Baltimore. David had then seven dollars in his pocket, the careful savings of the labors of half a year. He deposited the treasure with the wagoner for safekeeping. They started on their journey, with a wagon heavily laden with barrels of flour. As they were approaching a small settlement called Ellicott's Mills, David, a little ashamed to approach the houses in the ragged and much bespattered clothes which he wore on the way, crept into the wagon to put on his better garments. While there, in the midst of the flour barrels piled up all around him, the horses took fright at some strange sight which they encountered, and in a terrible scare rushed down a steep hill, turned a sharp corner, broke the tongue of the wagon and both of the axle-trees, and whirled the heavy barrels about in every direction. The escape of David from very serious injuries seemed almost miraculous, but our little barbarian leaped from the ruins unscathed. It does not appear that he had ever cherished any conception whatever of an overruling providence. Probably a religious thought had never entered his mind. A colt running by the side of the horses could not have been more insensible to every idea of death and responsibility at God's bar than was David Crockett. And he can hardly be blamed for this. The savages had some idea of the great spirit and of a future world. David was as uninstructed in those thoughts as are the wolves and the bears. Many years afterward, in writing of this occurrence, he says, with characteristic flippancy, interlarded with coarse phrases, This proved to me, if a fellow is born to be hung, he will never be drowned. And further, that if he is born for a seat in Congress, even flour-barrels can't make a mash of him. I didn't know how soon I should be knocked into a cocked hat, and get my walking-papers for another country. The wagon was quite demolished by the disaster. Another was obtained, the flour reloaded, and they proceeded to Baltimore, dragging the wreck behind them, to be repaired there. Here young Crockett was amazed at the aspect of civilization which was opened up before him. He wandered along the wharves, gazing bewildered upon the majestic ships, with their towering masts, cordage, and sails, which he saw floating there. He had never conceived of such fancies before. The mansions, the churches, the long lines of brick stores excited his amazement. It seemed to him that he had been suddenly introduced into a sort of fairyland. All thoughts of home now vanished from his mind. The great world was expanding before him, and the curiosity of his intensely active mind was roused to explore more of its wonders. One morning he ventured on board one of the ships at a wharf, and was curiously and cautiously peering about, when the captain caught sight of him. 
It so happened that he was in need of a sailor-boy, and being pleased with the appearance of the lad, asked David if he would not like to enter into his service to take a voyage to London. The boy had no more idea of where London was, or what it was, than of a place in the moon, but eagerly he responded, Yes, for he cared little where he went or what became of him. He was so glad of an opportunity to see more of the wonders of this unknown world. The captain made a few inquiries respecting his friends, his home, and his past modes of life, and then engaged him for the cruise. David, in a state of high, joyous excitement, hurried back to the wagoner to get his seven dollars of money and some clothes he had left with him. But Myers put a very prompt veto upon the lad's procedure, assuming that he was the boy's master, and declared that he should not go to sea. He refused to let him have either his clothes or his money, asserting that it was his duty to take him back to his parents in Tennessee. David would gladly have fled from him, and embarked without money and without clothes, but the wagoner watched him so closely that escape was impossible. David was greatly downhearted at this disappointment, and watched eagerly for an opportunity to obtain deliverance from his bondage. But Myers was a burly teamster who swung a very heavy wagon whip, threatening the boy with a heavy punishment if he should make any attempt to run away. After a few days, Myers loaded his team for Tennessee, and with his reluctant boy set out on his long journey. David was exceedingly restless. He now hated the man who was so tyrannically domineering over him. He had no desire to return to his home, and he dreaded the hickory stick with which he feared his brutal father would assail him. One dark night, an hour or two before the morning, David carefully took his little bundle of clothes, and creeping noiselessly from the cabin, rushed forward as rapidly as his nimble feet could carry him. He soon felt quite easy in reference to his escape. He knew that the wagoner slept soundly, and that two hours at least must elapse before he would open his eyes. He then would not know with certainty in what direction the boy had fled. He could not safely leave his horses and wagon, alone in the wilderness, to pursue him, and even should he unharness one of the horses and gallop forward in search of the fugitive, David, by keeping a vigilant watch, would see him in the distance, and could easily plunge into the thickets of the forest, and thus elude pursuit. He had run along five or six miles, when just as the sun was rising, he overtook another wagon. He had already begun to feel very lonely and disconsolate. He had naturally an affectionate heart and a strong mind, traits of character which gleamed through all the dark clouds that obscured his life. He was alone in the wilderness, without a penny, and he knew not what to do or which way to turn. The moment he caught sight of the teamster, his heart yearned for sympathy. Tears moistened his eyes, and hastening to the stranger, the friendless boy of but thirteen years frankly told his whole story. The wagoner was a rough, profane, burly man of generous feelings. There was an air of sincerity in the boy which convinced him of the entire truth of his statements. His indignation was aroused, and he gave expression to that indignation in unmeasured terms. Cracking his whip in his anger, he declared that Myers was a scoundrel, thus to rob a friendless boy, and that he would lash the money out of him. This man, whose name also chanced to be Myers, was of the tiger breed, fearing nothing, ever ready for a fight, and almost invariably coming off the conqueror. In his generous rage he halted his team, grasped his wagon-whip, and, accompanied by the trembling boy, turned back, breathing vengeance. David was much alarmed, and told his protector that he was afraid to meet the wagoner, who had so often threatened him with his whip. But his new friend said, "'Have no fear. The man shall give you back your money, or I will thrash it out of him.' They had proceeded but about two miles when they met the approaching team of Adam Myers. Henry Myers, David's new friend, leading him by the hand, advanced menacingly upon the other teamster, and greeted him with the words, "'You accursed scoundrel! What do you mean by robbing this friendless boy of his money?' Adam Myers confessed that he had received seven dollars of the boy's money, 
He said, however, that he had no money with him, and that he invested all he had in articles in his wagon, and that he intended to repay the boy as soon as they got back to Tennessee. This settled the question, and David returned with Henry Myers to his wagon, and accompanied him for several days on his slow and toilsome journey westward. The impatient boy, as once before, soon got weary of the loitering pace of the heavily laden team, and concluded to leave his friend and press forward more rapidly alone. It chanced one evening that several wagons met, and the teamsters encamped for the night together. Henry Myers told them the story of the friendless boy, and that he was now about to set out alone for the long journey, most of it through an entire wilderness, and through a land of strangers, wherever there might chance to be a few scattered cabins. They took up a collection for David, and presented him with three dollars. The little fellow pressed along, about one hundred and twenty-five miles, down the valley between the Allegheny and the Blue Ridges, until he reached Montgomery Courthouse. The region then, nearly three-quarters of a century ago, presented only here and there a spot where the light of civilization had entered. Occasionally the log cabin of some poor emigrant was found in the vast expanse. David, too proud to beg, when he had any money with which to pay, found his purse empty when he had accomplished this small portion of his journey. In this emergence he hired out to work for a man a month for five dollars, which was at the rate of about one shilling a day. Faithfully he fulfilled his contract, and then, rather dreading to return home, entered into an engagement with the hatter, Elijah Griffith, to work in his shop for four years. Here he worked diligently eighteen months without receiving any pay. His employer then failed, broke up, and left the country. Again this poor boy, thus the sport of fortune, found himself without a penny, with but few clothes, and those much worn. But it was not his nature to lay anything very deeply to heart. He laughed at misfortune, and pressed on singing and whistling through all storms. He had a stout pair of hands, good nature, and adaptation to any kind of work. There was no danger of his starving, and exposures, which many would deem hardships, were no hardships for him. Undismayed, he ran here and there, catching at such employment as he could find, until he had supplied himself with some comfortable clothing, and had a few dollars of ready money in his purse. Again he set out alone and on foot for his far-distant home. He had been absent over two years, and was now fifteen years of age. He trudged along, day after day, through rain and sunshine, till he reached a broad stream called New River. It was wintry weather. The stream was swollen by recent rains, and a gale then blowing was plowing the surface into angry waves. Teams forded the stream many miles above. There was a log hut here, and the owner had a frail canoe in which he could paddle an occasional traveler across the river, but nothing would induce him to risk his life in an attempt to cross in such a storm. The impetuous boy, in his ignorance of the effect of wind upon waves, resolved to attempt to cross at every hazard, and, notwithstanding all remonstrances, he obtained a leaky canoe, which was half-stranded upon the shore, and pushed out on his perilous voyage. He tied his little bundle of clothes to the bows of the boat, that they might not be washed or blown away, and soon found himself exposed to the full force of the wind, and tossed by billows such as he had never dreamed of before. He was greatly frightened, and would have given all he had in the world to have been safely back again upon the shore, but he was sure to be swamped if he should attempt to turn the boat broadside to the waves in such a gale. The only possible salvation for him was to cut the approaching billows with the bows of the boat. Thus he might possibly ride over them, though at imminent peril every moment of shipping a sea which would engulf him and his frail boat in a watery grave. In this way he reached the shore, two miles above the proper landing place. The canoe was then half full of water. He was drenched with spray, which was frozen into almost a coat of mail upon his garments. 
shivering with cold, he had to walk three miles through the forest before he found a cabin at whose fire he could warm and dry himself. Without any unnecessary delay, he pushed on until he crossed the extreme western frontier line of Virginia and entered Sullivan County, Tennessee. An able-bodied young man like David Crockett, strong, athletic, willing to work, and knowing how to turn his hand to anything, could, in the humblest cabin, find employment which would provide him with board and lodging. He was in no danger of starving. There was, at that time, but one main path of travel from east into the regions of the boundless west. As David was pressing along this path, he came to a little hamlet of log huts, where he found the brother whom he had left when he started from home, eighteen months before, with the drove of cattle. He remained with him for two or three weeks, probably paying his expenses by farm labor and hunting. Again he set out for home. The evening twilight was darkening into night when he caught sight of his father's humble cabin. Several wagons were standing around, showing that there must be considerable company in the house. With not a little embarrassment, he ventured in. It was rather dark. His mother and sisters were preparing supper at the immense fireside. Quite a group of teamsters were scattered around the room, smoking their pipes and telling their marvelous stories. David, during his absence of two years, had grown, and changed considerably in personal appearance. None of the family recognized him. They generally supposed, as he had been absent so long, that he was dead. David inquired if he could remain all night. Being answered in the affirmative, he took a seat in a corner and remained perfectly silent, gazing upon the familiar scene, and watching the movements of his father, mother, and sisters. At length supper was ready, and all took seats at the table. As David came more into the light, one of his sisters, observing him, was struck with his resemblance to her lost brother. Fixing her eyes upon him, she, in a moment, rushed forward and threw her arms around his neck, exclaiming, "'Here is my brother David!' Quite a scene ensued. The returning prodigal was received with as much affection as could be expected in a family with such uncultivated hearts and such unrefined habits as were found in the cabin of John Crockett. Even the stern old man forgot his hickory switch, and David, much to his relief, found that he should escape the long-dreaded whipping. Many years after this, when David Crockett, to his own surprise, and that of the whole nation, found himself elevated to the position of one of our national legislatures, he wrote, But it will be a source of astonishment to many, who reflect that I am now a member of the American Congress, the most enlightened body of men in the world, that, at so advanced an age, the age of fifteen, I did not know the first letter in the book. By the laws and customs of our land, David was bound to obey his father and work for him until he was twenty-one years of age. Until that time, whatever wages he might earn belonged to his father. It is often an act of great generosity for a hard-working farmer to release a stout lad of eighteen or nineteen from this obligation, and to give him, as it is phrased, his time. John Crockett owed a neighbor, Abraham Wilson, thirty-six dollars. He told David that if he would work for Mr. Wilson until his wages paid that sum, he would then release him from all his obligations to his father, and his son might go free. It was a shrewd bargain for the old man, for he had already learned that David was abundantly capable of taking care of himself, and that he would come and go where and when he pleased. The boy, weary of his wanderings, consented to the arrangement and engaged to work for Mr. Wilson for six months in payment for which the note was to be delivered up to his father. It was characteristic of David that whatever he undertook he engaged in with all his might. He was a rude, coarse boy. It was scarcely possible, with his past training, that he should be otherwise, but he was very faithful in fulfilling his obligations. Though his sense of right and wrong was very obtuse, 
he was still disposed to do right, so far as his uncultivated conscience revealed it to him. For six months David worked for Mr. Wilson with the utmost fidelity and zeal. He then received the note, presented it to his father, and, before he was sixteen years of age, stood up proudly his own man. His father had no longer the right to whip him. His father had no longer the right to call upon him for any service without paying him for it. And, on the other hand, he could no longer look to his father for food or clothing. This thought gave him no trouble. He had already taken care of himself for two years, and he felt no more solicitude in regard to the future than did the buffalo's calf or the wolf's whelp. Wilson was a bad man, dissipated and unprincipled. But he had found David to be so valuable a laborer that he offered him high wages if he would remain and work for him. It shows a latent, underlying principle of goodness in David that he should have refused the offer. He writes, The reason was, it was a place where a heap of bad company met to drink and gamble, and I wanted to get away from them, for I knowed very well if I stayed there I should get a bad name, as nobody could be respectable that would live there. About this time, a Quaker, somewhat advanced in years, a good, honest man by the name of John Kennedy, emigrated from North Carolina, and selecting his four hundred acres of land, about fifteen miles from John Crockett's, reared a log hut and commenced a clearing. In some transaction with Crockett, he took his neighbor's note for forty dollars. He chanced to see David, a stout lad of prepossessing appearance, and proposed that he should work for him for two shillings a day, taking him one week upon trial. At the close of the week, the Quaker expressed himself as highly satisfied with his work, and offered to pay him with his father's note of forty dollars for six months' labor on his farm. David knew full well how ready his father was to give his note, and how slow he was to pay it. He was fully aware that the note was not worth, to him, the paper upon which it was written. But he reflected that the note was an obligation upon his father, that he was very poor, and his lot in life was hard. It certainly indicated much innate nobility of nature that this boy, under these circumstances, should have accepted the offer of the Quaker. But David did this. For six months he labored assiduously, without the slightest hope of reward, excepting that he would thus relieve his father, whom he had no great cause either to respect or love, from the embarrassment of the debt. For a whole half-year David toiled upon the farm of the Quaker, never once during that time visiting his home. At the end of the term he received his pay for those long months of labor, in a little piece of rumpled paper, upon which his father had probably made his mark. It was Saturday evening. The next morning he borrowed a horse of his employer, and set out for a visit home. He was kindly welcomed. His father knew nothing of the agreement which his son had made with Mr. Kennedy. As the family were talking together around the cabin fire, David drew the note from his pocket, and presented it to his father. The old man seemed much troubled. He supposed Mr. Kennedy had sent it for collection. As usual, he began to make excuses. He said that he was very sorry that he could not pay it, that he had met with many misfortunes, and that he had no money, and that he did not know what to do. David then told his father that he did not hand him the bill for collection, but that it was a present from him, that he had paid it in full. It is easy for old, broken-down men to weep. John Crockett seemed much affected by this generosity of his son, and David says, He shed a heap of tears. He, however, avowed his inability to pay anything whatever upon the note. David had now worked for a year without getting any money for himself. His clothes were worn out, and altogether he was in a very dilapidated condition. He went back to the Quakers, and again engaged in his service, desiring to earn some money to purchase clothes. Two months thus passed away. Every ardent, impetuous boy must have a love adventure. David had his. A very pretty young Quakeress, 
of about David's age, came from North Carolina to visit Mr. Kennedy, who was her uncle. David fell desperately in love with her. We cannot better describe this adventure than in the unpolished diction of this illiterate boy. If one would understand this extraordinary character, it is necessary thus to catch such glimpses as we can of his inner life. Let this necessity atone for the unpleasant rudeness of speech. Be it remembered that this reminiscence was written after David Crockett was a member of Congress. I soon found myself head over heels in love with this girl. I thought that if all the hills about were pure chink, and all belonged to me, I would give them if I could just talk to her as I wanted to. But I was afraid to begin, for when I would think of saying anything to her, my heart would begin to flutter like a duck in a puddle. And if I tried to outdo it, and speak, it would get right smack up in my throat, and choke me like a cold potato. It bore on my mind in this way, till at last I concluded I must die if I didn't broach the subject. So I determined to begin, and hang on a-trying to speak, till my heart would get out of my throat one way or t'other. And so one day at it I went, and after several trials I could say a little. I told her how I loved her, that she was the darling object of my soul and body, and I must have her, or else I should pine down to nothing, and just die away with consumption. I found my talk was not disagreeable to her, but she was an honest girl, and didn't want to deceive nobody. She told me she was engaged to her cousin, a son of the old Quaker. This news was worse to me than war, pestilence or famine, but still, I knowed I could not help myself. I saw quick enough my cake was dough, and I tried to cool off as fast as possible. But I had hardly safety pipes enough, as my love was so hot as mighty nigh to burst my boilers. But I didn't press my claims any more, seeing there was no chance to do anything. David's grief was very sincere, and continued as long as is usually the case with disappointed lovers. David soon began to cherish some slight idea of the deficiency in his education, he had never been to school but four days, and in that time he had learned absolutely nothing. A young man, a Quaker, had opened a school about a mile and a half from Mr. Kennedy's. David made an arrangement with his employer by which he was to go to school four days in the week and work the other two days for his board. He continued in this way for six months. But it was very evident that David was not born for a scholar. At the end of that time he could read a little in the first primer, with difficulty he could make certain hieroglyphics which looked like his name. He could also perform simple sums in addition, subtraction, and multiplication. The mysteries of division he never surmounted. This was the extent of his education. He left school, and in the laborious life upon which he entered, never after improved any opportunity for mental culture. The disappointment which David had encountered in his love affair only made him more eager to seek a new object upon which he might fix his affections. Not far from Mr. Kennedy's, there was the cabin of a settler, where there were two or three girls. David had occasionally met them. Boy as he was, for he was not yet eighteen, he suddenly and impetuously set out to see if he could not pick, from them, one for a wife. Without delay he made his choice, and made his offer, and was as promptly accepted as a lover. Though they were both very young, and neither of them had a dollar, still, as those considerations would not have influenced David in the slightest degree, we know not why they were not immediately married. Several months of very desperate and satisfactory courtship passed away, when the time came for the nuptials of the little Quaker girl, which ceremony was to take place at the cabin of her uncle. David and his girl were invited to the wedding. The scene only inflamed the desires of David to hasten his marriage day. He was very importunate in pressing his claims. She seemed quite reluctant to fix the day, but at last consented, and says David, 
I thought if that day come, I should be the happiest man in the created world, or in the moon, or anywhere else. In the meantime, David had become very fond of his rifle, and had raised enough money to buy him one. He was still living with the Quaker. Game was abundant, and the young hunter often brought in valuable supplies of animal food. There were frequent shooting matches in that region. David, proud of his skill, was fond of attending them, but his Quaker employer considered them a species of gambling, which drew together all of the idlers and vagrants of the region, and he could not approve of them. There was another boy living at that time with the Quaker. They practiced all sorts of deception to steal away to the shooting matches, under the pretense that they were engaged in other things. This boy was quite in love with the sister of David's intended wife. The staid member of the Society of Friends did not approve of the rude courting frolics of those times, which frequently occupied nearly the whole night. The two boys slept in a garret, in what was called the gable end of the house. There was a small window in their rough apartment. One Sunday, when the Quaker and his wife were absent, attending a meeting, the boys cut a long pole and leaned it up against the side of the house, as high as the window, but so that it would not attract any attention. They were as nimble as catamounts and could run up and down the pole without the slightest difficulty. They would go to bed at the usual early hour. As soon as all was quiet, they would creep from the house, dressed in their best apparel, and taking the two farm horses, would mount their backs and ride, as fast as possible, ten miles through the forest road to where the girls lived. They were generally expected. After spending all the hours of the middle of the night in the varied frolics of the country courtship, they would again mount their horses and gallop home, being especially careful to creep in at their window before the dawn of day. The course of true love seemed for once to be running smoothly. Saturday came, and the next week, on Thursday, David was to be married. It so happened that there was to be a shooting match on Saturday, at one of the cabins not far from the home of his intended bride. David made some excuse as to the necessity of going home to prepare for his wedding, and in the morning set out early, and directed his steps straight to the shooting match. Here he was very successful in his shots, and won about five dollars. In great elation of spirits, and fully convinced that he was one of the greatest and happiest men in the world, he pressed on towards the home of his intended bride. He had walked but a couple of miles when he reached the cabin of the girl's uncle. Considering the members of the family already his relatives, he stepped in, very patronizingly, to greet them. He doubted not that they were very proud of the approaching alliance of their niece with so distinguished a man as himself, a man who had actually five dollars in silver in his pocket. Entering the cabin, he found a sister of his betrothed there. Instead of greeting him with the cordiality he expected, she seemed greatly embarrassed. David had penetration enough to see that something was wrong. The reception she gave him was not such as he thought a brother-in-law ought to receive. He made more particular inquiries. The result we will give in David's language. She then burst into tears, and told me that her sister was going to deceive me, and that she was to be married to another man the next day. This was as sudden to me as a clap of thunder on a bright, sunshiny day. It was the capstone of all the afflictions I had ever met with, and it seemed to me that it was more than any human creature could endure. It struck me perfectly speechless for some time, and made me feel so weak that I thought I should sink down. I, however, recovered from the shock after a little, and rose and started without any ceremony, or even bidding anybody good-bye. The young woman followed me out to the gate, and entreated me to go on to her father's, and said she would go with me. She said the young man who was going to marry her sister had got his license and asked for her, but she assured me that her father and mother both preferred me to him, and that she had no doubt if I would go on I could break off the match. But I found I could go no farther. My heart was bruised, and my spirits were broken down. 
So I bid her farewell, and turned my lonesome and miserable steps back again homeward, concluding that I was only born for hardship, misery, and disappointment. I now began to think that in making me it was entirely forgotten to make my mate, and that I was born odd, and should always remain so, and that nobody would have me. But all these reflections did not satisfy my mind, for I had no peace, day or night, for several weeks. My appetite failed me, and I grew daily worse and worse. They all thought I was sick, and so I was, and it was the worst kind of sickness, a sickness of the heart, and all the tender parts, produced by disappointed love. For some time David continued in a state of great dejection. A lovelorn swain of seventeen years, thus disconsolate, he loved to roam the forest alone, with his rifle as his only companion, brooding over his sorrows. The gloom of the forest was congenial to him, and the excitement of pursuing the game afforded some slight relief to his agitated spirit. One day, when he had wandered far from home, he came upon the cabin of a Dutchman with whom he had formed some previous acquaintance. He had a daughter, who was exceedingly plain in her personal appearance, but who had a very active mind, and was a bright, talkative girl. She had heard of David's misadventure, and rather unfeelingly rallied him upon his loss. She, however, endeavored to comfort him by the assurance that there were as good fish in the sea as had ever been caught out of it. David did not believe in this doctrine at all, as applied to his own case. He thought his loss utterly irretrievable, and in his still high appreciation of himself, notwithstanding his deep mortification, he thought that the lively Dutch girl was endeavoring to catch him for her lover. In this, however, he soon found himself mistaken. She told him that there was to be a reaping frolic in their neighborhood in a few days, and that if he would attend it, she would show him one of the prettiest girls upon whom he ever fixed his eyes. Difficult as he found it to shut out from his mind his lost love, upon whom his thoughts were dwelling by day and by night, he very wisely decided that his best remedy would be found in what Dr. Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. That is, that he would try and fall in love with some other girl as soon as possible. His own language, in describing his feelings at that time, is certainly very different from that which the philosopher or the modern novelist would have used, but is quite characteristic of the man. The Dutch maiden assured him that the girl who had deceived him was not to be compared in beauty with the ones she would show to him. He writes, I didn't believe a word of all this, for I had thought that such a piece of flesh and blood as she had never been manufactured, and never would again. I agreed with her that the little varmint had treated me so bad that I ought to forget her, and yet I couldn't do it. I concluded that the best way to accomplish it was to cut out again, and see if I could find any other that would answer me. And so I told the Dutch girl that I would be at the reaping, and would bring as many as I could with me. David seems at this time to have abandoned all constant industry, and to be loafing about with his rifle, thus supporting himself with the game he took. He traversed the still but slightly broken forest in all directions, carrying to many scattered farmhouses intelligence of the approaching reaping frolic. He informed the good Quaker with whom he had worked of his intention to be there. Mr. Kennedy endeavored to dissuade him. He said that there would be much bad company there, and there would be drinking and carousing, and that David had been so good a boy that he should be very sorry to have him get a bad name. The curiosity of the impetuous young man was, however, by this time, too much aroused for any persuasions to hold him back. Shouldering his rifle, he hastened to the reaping at the appointed day. Upon his arrival at the place, he found a large company already assembled. He looked around for the pretty girl, but she was nowhere to be seen. She chanced to be in a shed, frolicking with some others of the young people. But as David, with his rifle on his shoulder, sauntered around, an aged Irishwoman, full of nerve and volubility, caught sight of him. 
She was the mother of the girl, and had been told of the object of David's visit. He must have appeared very boyish, for he had not yet entered his eighteenth year, and though very wiry and athletic, he was of slender frame and rather small in stature. The Irish woman hastened to David, lavished upon him compliments respecting his rosy cheeks, and assured him that she had exactly such a sweetheart for him as he needed. She did not allow David to have any doubt that she would gladly welcome him as the husband of her daughter. Pretty soon the young, fresh, blooming, mirthful girl came along, and David fell in love with her at first sight. Not much formality of introduction was necessary. Each was looking for the other. Both of the previous loves of the young man were forgotten in an instant. He devoted himself with the utmost assiduity to the little Irish girl. He was soon dancing with her. After a very vigorous double shuffle, as they were seated side by side on a bench intensely talking, for David Crockett was never at a loss for words, the mother came up and, in her wonderfully frank mode of matchmaking, jocularly addressed him as her son-in-law. Even David's imperturbable self-possession was disturbed by this assailment. Still he was much pleased to find both mother and daughter so favorably disposed towards him. The rustic frolicking continued nearly all night. In the morning, David, in a very happy frame of mind, returned to the Quakers, and, in anticipation of soon setting up farming for himself, engaged to work for him for six months for a low-priced horse. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.